romance, and going in the kitchen to battle the chefs, all on Be The Star You Are with your personal growth success expert, Cynthia Bryan. Coming right up. Stay tuned. Hey, how you doing? Got a quick question. Yeah? Who was Rudolf Nureyev? Rudy Nureyev. Rudy. Okay, I know this one. Good. Uh, uh, wasn't he a... Nureyev? Nureyev. 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 Uh, wasn't he a defenseman for the Maple Leafs? Sure about that? Could have been a goalie. Yeah. Hey, hi. How you doing? Uh, who was Louis Armstrong? That's easy. He was the first guy on the moon. Really? You know... One small step for man. Sure, one giant leap for Louis. Hey, young lady. Uh-huh. Does the name Caravaggio mean anything to you? Wasn't he the guy that went out with that mob guy's sister until he got whacked? You know, no. Are your kids as well-rounded as they could be? Kids who participate in the arts do better in school and in life. To learn more about the value of arts education, visit americansforthearts.org. Because all kids should get to appreciate Nureyev's dance, Armstrong's horn, and Caravaggio's brush. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Radio's finest program, a positive book talk, star style, be the star you are. My name is Cynthia Bryan, and I am always excited to be your personal growth success coach here on the airwaves with you every single week, bringing you the authors and the experts and the professionals that help you enjoy and experience a more fulfilled life. So get ready to pump your energy, love, learn, laugh, listen, and live your dreams through books and media. Our show today is going to be informative as well as fun. In segment one, we're going to understand how the job we want is within our grasp with author of Excuse Me, Your Job is Waiting, and How to Attract the Work that You Want, Laura George. And then we're going to enjoy a little bit of frivolity in segment two, kind of like Jane Austen, with Janet Mullaney's hilarious peek into high society and her novel, The Rules of Gentility. And in T for Two, our chef Heather Brittany and I wage a battle of the sexes in the kitchen. So you'd want to stay with us and enjoy this time. My purpose in providing you this radio show is to communicate to you that you already possess everything you need to be the producer, writer, director, and star of your life. And we have three rules. You must smile, have fun, be willing to be wild and crazy. And, of course, we want to get you reading some books that you may not know of. As an author, I have four bestsellers. Chicken Soup for the Gardener's Soul, Be the Star You Are, The Business of Show Business, and Miracle Moments. You can get more information and purchase autographed copies at the website, CynthiaBryan.com, and proceeds benefit the charity Be the Star You Are that brings you this show. Our motto, to be a leader, you must be a reader. The Miracle Moment for today is brought to you by Star Style Productions. Whenever you need any acting, presentation, writing, training, or anything for your lifestyle challenges, call 925-377-7827. That's 925-377-STAR for the best coaching around. And this is by Lee Iacocca, who is the former chairperson of Chrysler Corporation. So what do we do? Anything, something. So as long as we don't just sit there, if we screw it up, start over, try something else. 
if we wait until we're satisfied with all the uncertainties, it's going to be too late. Well, how true that is. Well, every week, Be The Star You Are showcases these incredible authors and experts who enhance and inspire your life. Be The Star You Are is a 501c3 charity dedicated to empowering women, families, and youth at risk to improve literacy and positive media messages such as this radio show. Visit the website, bethestarur.org. And again, remember the motto, to be a leader, you must be a reader. Well, do we live to work or do we work to live? Have we finally realized that when we do work we love, we actually never work a day in our lives? Well, human resource manager and author Laura George helps us clarify what we want as well as what we deserve while we're out there in the job hunt. And her new book is called Excuse Me, Your Job is Waiting. Welcome, Laura, to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Well, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for writing your book. You have been on both sides of the hiring process, I understand, from reading your book because you have worked and work as a human resource manager and you've been in many different um, job occupations. And at the same time, you've had to interview potential candidates for employment at the places where you are. And what you've learned over the years, and I like your way of going about it is that you've learned to work with your gut. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's it's amazing. We we worry so much about our the tools we're presenting in our presentations that sometimes we lose feelings. Uh, we 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 take those feelings that we're getting and we try to push them aside. And that's how we end up in bad jobs. We know when it's a good fit. HR people know when it's a good fit. So, um, we have to learn to pay attention to our gut. So how how do we learn to listen more? What are some of the recommendations that we pay attention to? I know that in talking with your book, you you give many examples from your own life, and some are very funny and some are really tragic, where you didn't listen and you kept plodding ahead. You know, for example, the, the time that you got the 90-day notice. And, <laughs> and you're, you even as you were writing, I could feel the anger as you're writing, like, I don't even want to write about this. It was so horrible. But you knew it was coming down the pike, but yet it's like sometimes we just try to push the river and we don't listen to our intuition. What tips do you want to offer? Well, the amazing thing about that is when you read that, that story, yes, I was angry and I was doing everything wrong, but the law of attraction was an action. What I had been thinking about for the months and months prior to the 90-day notice was opening my own company. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted. That's the energy I was putting out. But I was fearful when it came my way. It didn't come the way I expected it to come. And it's, it really threw me a curveball and scared me. So I went into panic mode. And that's what a lot of people do when they search for employment. And we should just clarify so what we're talking about here so our listeners understand. Sure is that you were working in this job, you had lots and lots of great ideas, and you were moving forward, and the boss, you know, we call him, you call him Scott in the book, um, he, he started getting a little more distant, etc. you kept pushing forward, but what you were really thinking in your heart is you wanted to open your own business, and 
but you weren't really working towards that. You, you thought it, but you weren't feeling it, right? Well, I was feeling it. I was no longer really connected to my job, but I was fearful of doing it. I mean, it's a big step, and, and basically, you know, you work for money, and when you go on your own, it's, it's a huge step. Well, I and really you said that, too. You said that the loss of getting that bi-monthly check was a little scary. Yeah, I think I put in there, I think they're tasty or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you said, that's exactly right. They're delicious, you know what I mean? Because, but I really saw that so what you ended up sabotaging your actual first client because he could have been your first client as an HR consultant yes he could have yes he, he could have and, and, and actually wouldn't you look at the law of attraction I, I'd put out that that's what I wanted to do but because it didn't come to me under my terms and conditions I didn't even see it it took months for me to see what I had turned away so one of the things in listening to intuition is don't be attached to the outcomes and another thing is don't Pay attention to the world around you. Don't say it has to come this way or it's not the right thing. Yes. Once we start focusing on something, it's going to come our way, but it will probably come in the back door, not the front door with an announcement. And that's, you know, there's like this uh, in the law of attraction. I always think that what you talk about and think about comes about. Yes, you bring it in, but you don't really, you know, I see so many people looking for work and they're sending out resumes and they're doing a lot of things, but they're angry and they're scared and they are blocking out the world around them. They're just staying in their own space and if they looked around and thought, oh my goodness, there's all kinds of people around me that are willing to help me, that would like to help me, but I'm too busy focusing on me to, to see them. And so people get we have caught to get out it. of our own way is what you're really saying. Oh, yes, yes. The law of attraction can only deliver, and, and effectively, if you start looking at the world around you and realizing that that job is going to come to you if you focus on it. And if you focus on a bad job, you're going to get a bad job. And if you focus on a good job, you're going to get a good job. But it may not come by the avenue you think it's going to come from. That's what I mean by don't focus on the outcome. Also, it doesn't happen sometimes on the timeline that we decide for ourselves. In your book, the book is called Excuse Me, Your Job is Waiting, Attract the Work You Want. Laura George is our author. She also talks about how very often we give up. You know, we say this is what we want. We'll put in the work. You evidently, you know, you do coaching and consulting for people who want to get in the job. You help them with their resumes. And you've noticed that you get a client and they're all gung-ho until they get that first rejection. And then, boom, they just clam up. It's like, that's it. I'm done. Well, yeah, I know. I see this, and it's kind of like you have to realize that the universe, it, things are going to come, but you have to do the work. You have to have a resume. You have to follow up. Follow-up is so incredibly important. You have to send out a nice follow-up letter. You have to make the follow-up phone calls. It takes you out of your comfort level. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I think what I see a lot of people make the mistake is before they even go in the interview. By the time you go on the interview, you should be going on the interview to close the deal. Basically, you should know what the company does, who runs the company, and what what they're looking from, uh, to get from you. I see people, I saw this so much when I was sitting on, on the HR side of the desk, people would come in and they would not know what they wanted. They would know nothing about the company. They could not connect with the company. You basically have to know all of that before you walk in the door, and it's very easy with the Internet to research even small companies. It's so, that you know, the, easy, the Internet has changed everything, and I think what you said is so critical right now about people don't know what they want. They know they want a job, and they want so much money, and they want to be happy, but they haven't pinpointed what their skill sets are, what they can bring to the table, what are the features and benefits 
for the company. So it's not all about you, the uh, the future employee. It's about what you can do for the company. Well, I've actually had a person come into me one day and tell me I had to hire her husband because he needed a job. And I said, what? <laughs> "Oh no! Somebody actually told you that?" Yeah. Oh, okay. One of, one, of, one of my employees came in and said I had to hire her husband because he needed a job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I said, "Well, no, I don't." Mm-hmm. Okay. You hire people, and and this is kind of hard for. It's so simple. P- people, jobs are created because somebody can't do something, doesn't have time to do something, or doesn't want to do something, and you basically have to fill a need when you go to look for a job. And that's why you have to do your homework. And that's why you have to do your homework. And another thing is, don't just go on the job boards and assume those are the only jobs out there. If you look at the companies around you, a lot of them maybe are thinking of creating a position but haven't defined it yet, or they're too small and they don't want to get emails from all over the world, so they're talking internally about, hey, do you know somebody that could maybe do this? If you are looking for a certain job and you know what industry you want to go into, call the call. Call That's really out of people's comfort zone. It's out of their comfort zone, but if you know what you want and you know the value you bring, it starts to go into your comfort zone. And also, I think that if you get told no the first time, you, if you really believe you're a right fit for that company or that employer, is to go back with another angle and say, I really believe that I can bring value to your company, and this is how, and would you just give me five more minutes? Exactly. And they really appreciate that because it's like, oh, this person is diligent, has done the work, really cares, and really wants it. And you bring that out in your book. If you want the job, say it when you're face-to-face. Say, I want this job. And follow up. Follow up with a letter. I I was coaching somebody, and he did not like to do follow-up letters because he said he had a kiss-up component he found distasteful. Well, tough, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I I don't care if you find it distasteful or not. It it shows that you care. It shows that you follow up. It shows you're professional. And these things are expected. Well, and in the book, again, the book's name is Excuse Me, Your Job is Waiting, you have examples of cover letters. Yes. Uh, You have examples of a good follow-up letter. So, you know, there's no excuses that it's you can't uh, figure out how to write one. You can pick up the book and then just adopt this letter, adapt it, and make it into your own words and make it worthwhile because these are very short, to the point, and they're very professional. And the key, again, is being professional. You talk about dressing the part. Yes. Let's talk about dressing for success. Well, there are a lot of books written specifically on dressing for success. And the book I wrote is across the board. In fact, it did not say a career. It said job because I tried to write a book that was for every occupation because the law of attraction works in every occupation. So basically, dress for the position you're going for. Feel that you're already in that job. That's going to help bring it your way, and it's going to make you appear like the right candidate for the job. The, so it's like the, the power business. shoot is, is perfect at a certain level. But um, I, I have an, uh, a story in there about a guy who came in for a factory job. And he had a, a clean pair of jeans, a clean T-shirt, he was a nice shave, but he had on a union hat in a non-union environment. That was a great story <laughs> because your, the, your boss was like, 
you couldn't get him out of there quicker. Oh, I, he would have I know. hired him had he not had that cap on that was speaking AFL-CIO. Right, and, and you know, that cap would have been perfect in a different environment, not the one he was in that day. So know the environment you're going into and dress appropriately. Well, obviously, just, that's a great example of either, even though he was qualified for the position, either he didn't research the company and realize it was a non-union working place, or the way that it was interpreted by uh, the powers that be is this could be a troublemaker. Right, and the thing of it is, like I said, and, and another company, it could have been perfect. Mm-hmm. It was He did not dress for the company he was going to. And it's a little tricky sometimes with um, even... Uh, professional people because of the casual environment. If you feel you're, not, you're, you're going to be overdressed or uncomfortable, talk to the HR person before going in. It's better to be overdressed than underdressed. You feel better about yourself, you present yourself better, you carry yourself better, and you look like you want success. And companies like to hire people that want success. Well, and you mentioned in your book that although the HR person is not your psychologist or your therapist or or your best friend, they really can help guide you uh, for the right way to get in the door because they know what they're looking for, and usually they're willing to give you that information if you approach them in in a very professional way. And another thing is when you sit down to have the interview, let the HR person talk first. Listen. So many people come in and they're concerned that they have a very finite period of time to sell themselves and they just start talking before they even have a grasp of what the job is. You well, and that's basically... a, that goes across the board, I think, for anything in life is to learn to listen. Listening is a, a true skill. Well, at the back of your books in your appendix, you have this great your to-do list yes. because the, the law of attraction really doesn't fail. If you really will put your energy into it, you will attract the job you want. And you start off by saying, get up early, meditate, get the message from your higher self, and really get very clear, and then set a schedule. And then you've created a point system, which I thought was quite fun. Well, the thing of it is, I see people telling me they're looking for work, and when I ask them what they've done, well, I find out they haven't done anything. And if you develop a schedule, you don't have to work at looking for a job all day. You don't have to turn it into a job. In fact, I also say to make sure you have some pleasure and have some fun every day. Um, That's incredibly important. But the thing of it is, if you look at a Pareto model, we are most productive at a certain point in time. We get 80% of our work done and 20% of our time. Find out when you're productive and look for a job during those hours and Get it out of the way. And also, everybody has a different productive time. So for some people, it's in the morning. It's others, it's, that's their, their downtime's the afternoon and vice versa. So it's, really, it's, it's so important to know what your best times are. Well, uh, Laura, this is a great book because it really is a, uh, goes about the law of attraction, how you can bring the job that you want, whether it's a career or just a part-time job or whatever, but by getting very clear basically asking for what you want, visualizing it, doing the work, getting some support around you, and believing that you deserve it. And paying attention. And paying attention and listening. Can we give out your website? Oh, please do. Okay, go ahead. LHGConsultingInc.com LHGConsultingInc.com 
Com. Right. Well, and like that's for Laura George, and she and you're doing uh, coaching and consulting. Yes, I am. And the name of the book is Excuse Me, Your Job is Waiting. Laura George, thank you so much for being on Star Style. Be the star you are. Well, thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. We love your attraction. It is great. Okay, you're listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style. Be the star you are. When we come back, we are going into some Regency fun. Stay with us. Singing lovely songs. Like most people, you've probably got a calendar or a day planner to help you keep track of important dates. But there are some things in life that we can't put on our calendars because we don't know when or if they'll happen. Things like emergencies, disasters, or even a fire. So prepare for the unexpected today by establishing a family disaster plan with help from your local Red Cross. When we come together, we become part of something bigger than us all. Help prepare your community by visiting redcross.org. The American Red Cross. Together, we can save a life. Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. In order to grow your business, here are 10 tips that experts agree can help this happen quickly. Number one, brand and create brand awareness. Two, partner with compatible companies. Three, assemble a team of the best professionals. Four, motivate and inspire employees. Five, do what you are best suited for and hire someone else to do the rest. Six, establish your uniqueness. And remember that you are always the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan from Star Style with another business bite. Listen, the world is talking. World Talk Radio. about following your heart, living your dreams, champagne for the spirit, brought to you by Be The Star You Are, nonprofit corporation, produced by Star Style Productions. For more information on the incredible authors and experts that grace our airwaves, visit our website at bethestarur.org. And while you're there, consider making a donation to the charity that empowers women, families, and youth through these positive messages. Well, if you are a fan of Bridget Jones' Diary or you love Jane Austen novels, you're going to enjoy the lightness of being that is The Rule of Gentility by Janet Mullaney. Janet was raised in Britain, currently lives in the United States, and from reading this novel, I think she had a great time getting into the heads, the hearts, and the bodies of her characters. Welcome, Janet, to Be the Star You Are. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, th- I thought that this was such a fun read, and I have to tell you that I normally don't read kind of romance novels or Regency novels or any of this, so this was a, a total departure for me. And I do like Jane Austen, though, and this, these characters were so unique and of such interest to me. I wanted you, first of all, to, to describe what consists of a Regency character. Oh gosh! Uh, <laughs> what makes what makes uh, it Regency? What makes things Regency? Well, it's partly the setting, which is roughly speaking the first two decades of the nineteenth century in England. Um, uh, that was a period where there was a very specific style in clothes and in architecture and in art, and um, and you had um, um, an emphasis on elegance and manners 
and um, my book really isn't about that at all. <laughs> well, thank you, but you know, it, in a way it is, because... Well, well it is and it isn't, yes. It, it is and it isn't, because we talk, you know, there's a very big emphasis on uh, Philomena. I love these names, by the way. I mean, I wonder if they're going to come back and people are going to be, mar- be named things like Philomena Wellesley Clegg. You know, I can just see that. So it seems so proper. Everything is so proper, and you don't mm-hmm. call people by their first names. So That's it right. is... You know, there is that etiquette. Yes, yes, the whole idea of the bonnet. Yes. Yeah, that's really a gift to a writer, actually, the um, not being able to use or not always using people's first names because you can can have a lot of degrees of intimacy if you're calling somebody by their last name. Like, for instance, if I were to address you as Miss Bryan, um, you know, that, that, that would be very formal. But if I call you Cynthia, then then it... It shows that we have a, close, a closer relationship. Right. And what, what I found that interesting because, of course, here in the United States in these days and times, people call one another by their first name unless they really don't know them and it is more formal and they'll call them the Mr. or Miss. But it was even when you knew someone, you had to ask permission to use their first name. And I love, yes. I love the way you set up the book so that we could really get into the heads of the characters where you had, um, how do you pronounce say his name, Indigo? Inigo? Well, I pronounce it Inigo, which Inigo. I think is correct. Okay. Yes. I think it's just such a lovely name. It is. Mr. Yeah. Inigo Lindsley. It was, yeah. I mean, it was lovely. I, I wish I had the, the English accent like you do. And um, I liked the way very much that you put, you would have a, a chapter that she's speaking, then he's speaking or thinking, because you really had that repartee going on of how they were on the same wavelength and different wavelengths, and uh, it gave you a lot more intimacy into the times. Yes. Well, that, that's fairly atypical for romance. Generally, romance is written in third person. And I, um, this was really an experiment for me. I, I started trying to write Bridget Jones's diary set in the Regency, and it didn't last very long because, of course, you know, in Bridget Jones's diary, you have the counts every day of the calories and the cigarettes and the alcohol you Right, right. And I really couldn't find any, any Regency substitutes for those. And um, then I thought, well, you know, first person is fun. It's nice. I'm, 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 I'm having a good time with this. But I really would like the other perspective, which you always have in romance, you, um, which, which is really nice because you can, you can watch the characters falling in love with each other and misunderstanding each other. So I started writing in Inigo's voice as well and, and ran them together. It's, the, the book mostly is, is Philomena's voice because I think it's her story. But you have so much of Inigo, and I liked him so much. And, of course, the whole time you're rooting that you're hoping they're going to get together. And what was very fascinating is the fact that then, you know, as it unravels, we find out that the, the famous actress is actually his mistress and the fact that she can, she can accept this so much. And also that children out of wedlock were were bastards at that time and so frowned upon. It was a different look, a different perspective on the rules of gentility, I guess. Yes, exactly, yes. This book was tremendously um, entertaining for me to write. Um, And it's entertaining to read. 
It's a it's good definitely you, you start off, and for me, not having been familiar with the genre, I started off and I thought, okay, where is this going? And then it was, I couldn't put it down. I had to stay and read the whole thing in one sitting. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. Um, you. You did, of course, catch the Jane Austen references. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, the, first, the first sentence is a knockoff of the first sentence of Pride and Prejudice. Right, exactly. And there is also, um, there's also reference to, there, there was a very famous description of Jane Austen by somebody who obviously didn't like her very much. You described her as a silly, a silly husband hunting butterfly. And um, somebody describes Philomena as that at some point. And also the character of Philomena's mother, Mrs. Wellesley Clegg, was actually based on two Jane Austen characters, uh, Mrs. Bennet from um, Pride and Prejudice. The way that she run, runs on at the mouth is just hysterical. Yes, you must have had fun writing her. Oh, I did. Yes, and and she's also a, a sort of clone of Mrs. Bennet with Miss Bates from Emma, who can never finish a sentence. Mm-hmm. And um, and she was she was tremendous fun to write. They they all were, but but particularly I think um, Mrs. Wellesley Clegg. So when you're writing these characters, give us a little a little background on how you start. Do you start? Did you start with Philomena? Did, where did you start with this? I started with Philomena, and originally the book didn't start where it where, where it does start. It started with um, I think it actually started with the scene in the ball, which is when um, Inigo and Philomena first kiss. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and my editor suggested that I flesh it out a bit, so I started with a new beginning, um, so that we were introduced to both, well, through Philomena's eyes, we were introduced to both of the characters together, and, um, and I think it is actually a stronger beginning, because you see Philomena in the sort of context of her friends. And you also see Inigo in the context of his family. Um, and one of the things I was thinking when I was writing with this was this book is about the love affair between the two of them, but it's also about family and family responsibilities. And, and you know, the family that you that you are given, you cannot get away from. And Inigo makes the comment that, however much he looks forward to seeing his family again when he's with them, that they drive him mad. He's in the position; he's the youngest son of the family, so he's more or less dependent on them, and he's bossed around by his mother and he's bossed around by his eldest brother, who's an earl. And quite a bit of the book is, in fact, about his relationship with his family and about Philomena's relationship with her family because, I mean, she loves her family, but she has this mother who never stops talking and, um, and a father who is sort of obsessed with the house falling down there. Right. Their, their, <laughs> exactly. their, their house back home in Lancashire is over a coal mine. It's their coal mine, and it's subsiding. And so he gets letters home saying, well, you know, today the butler's pantry caved in <laughs> or the staircase is falling down. Yeah, or the and chimney has a three-inch crack. Or, you know. That's right, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I laughed about it because it was like he was, uh, everyone he wanted, he was always asking them what they knew about, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. He interviews suitors by saying, what do you know of subsidence? Right. It's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know anything. Well, and that was a question that I had, too, because um, obviously Philomena's family was, they, they had money, but mm-hmm. they weren't aristocratic. And right. 
Whereas in Aniko's family, they were they had status. I mean, the brother was an earl. Oh, yes. but they had no money. Yeah. Well, they, they, they had some money, but they were talking about how he, he, being the youngest, he needed to marry into some money. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And the, the wealthy Cleggs are stinking rich. So, um, so it's certainly not going to hurt if he marries an heiress. And his, his, his initial motivation to marry at first is that his family put pressure on him, and they say that they will give him one of the family estates if he becomes serious about getting married. And essentially growing up. I mean, it is a book about people growing up as well. Yes, because, you know, he's out there philandering with, with everybody and just having a good old time because he's really not planning on getting married ever until he, he runs into Philomena and it's, he turns into mush. He just, he absolutely falls head over heels. He never knew those feelings before. That's right. I thought it was very fascinating, too, that in this time period that the whole idea of Men of stature having mistresses was just taken for granted. That's the way it was. And you even have the bishop in <laughs> caught oh, yes. in flagrante, and he's uh, and and it's most uh, normal. Yes. Well, I think generally in the Regency period, um, people were um, a lot more open about sex than they were, um, you know, a few decades later on. And this is one of the fascinating historical things that the Regency. Um, or, or, or the Regency generation became Victorians. Um, so I think, you know, things were changing, but certainly there was a fair amount of openness. And also, you always get this um, sort of upper crust of society who do exactly what they want, and they live by their own rules. So but I think seems, that's part of it, too. But I loved your character of Kate, because she seemed to really have a head on her shoulders and know what she wanted, and she did, had a sort of a devil-may-care attitude. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kate is, is, is very, very realistic about, about her situation. She, um, um, she, she says to Philomena at one point that, uh, you know, she had a respectable trade when she was working as a seamstress and, you and know, worked basement. tremendously long hours for hardly any money. And, and in fact, it's, it's a gamble for her. But, but, she, but she became a prostitute because um, that really seemed the lesser of two evils for her. Well, and the manager there at the brothel, I mean, that was an interesting turn of fate. I won't give the details away, but I loved the way that that was incorporated and the, and the trap that Philomena's father sent to figure out what was going out was most interesting. Now, what is the... You talk about the ton, T-O-N. Yes. Could you explain that more? Because I understood the trade would be, I guess, the different trades that there were, whether yes, it's the a guild trade. The trade are the middle class, the people who have money but not breeding. The ton are the people who are um, the fashionable people who have titles and, um, and they consider themselves the leaders of society. They so consider themselves the ones with the power. Now, is it still similar? Are there any of this today? I mean, do we look because there's still aristocracy, you know, in a... Oh, yes, yes. Um, so they, do they still refer to it in the same way? Oh, no, no. I think, um, I think um, the aristocracy are, are a, lot more, a, a lot more toned down, shall we say now. But, you, you know, there are people who do still own huge estates. Of course, now they have to regard them as money-making ventures. Um, uh, quite a few families 
you know, have given their, their, their ancestral homes to the National Trust and, and have them open to the public. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm actually I'm going to be speaking at Grayshot Manor or Grayshot Spa in Surrey that was once the home of Alfred Lord Tennyson. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, and lovely. I thought, you know, that's so fascinating. I mean, it dates back evidently to 1085, and when we think of something being that old, I, I can't even imagine. But it must be very costly for a family to try to keep up, you know, acres and acres of land and then these very, very old uh, uh, manors or Oh, yes. yes. Well, old houses need to be looked after and... Uh... You know, and, and when you need to replace anything like a window pane or a, or a bit of molding, it's a tremendously expensive undertaking. So are you doing a sequel to The Rules of Gentility? Are I we going to find out what happens afterwards I don't to our think, characters? Well, you know, the story ends with a lot of loose ends. It certainly um, does, and I wanted more. <laughs> You know, you whet my appetite now. I don't believe a sequel is in the works. That might change. I don't know. Um, I mean, I um, I did actually start writing a sequel, um, but um, which was set six years later on, um, and it was a lot of fun to do that style of writing again. Um, I think I'm probably going to do something which will have the same sort of voice, but it will involve different characters. So maybe maybe later on all the characters may come together. <laughs> but yes. you're, you're, they're so well defined, and I just can picture all of your characters. You just did a beautiful job of it. The name of the book is The Rules of Gentility. It's by Janet Mullaney, and her website is www.janetmullaney.com. And that Mulaney is spelled M-U-L-L-A-N-Y dot com. Well, you have not lost your British accent at all. It is so charming. Thank you very much. And I know that you're writing other, uh, many other um, types of genres, too. And you do, you also um, write erotic uh, historicals under a pseudonym. That's right. I have another 2007 release. It's October 2007. Um, under the name of Jane Lockwood, and that is called Forbidden Shores. And it's probably not as funny. Um, I'm, I mean, this is the first time I actually set out to write a funny book. Um, but I find that, you know, humor tends to creep in generally in the form of irony or, or banter um, in just about everything I write. Well, you obviously you obviously enjoy writing with a sense of humor because you have some humor in your life, and it shows in your writing. And it, it was it, it was just great. It just kept the pages going when you all the little things that were happening. It was like, oh my goodness, what is coming next? And it keeps you giggling. I think it's great to know that hopefully they were laughing in the past a couple hundred years ago as well. Oh, I think they were. I, I think. Um... I think although, you know, some aspects of life were very grim, um, people did laugh. I mean, Jane Austen, um, whose life was not, I think by our standards, a particularly happy one, certainly had a sense of humor. She could be very waspish and sort of catty, but, um, but I think she got a great deal of enjoyment from her life. And just one last question, because this whole idea of the bonnet, 
I just cracked up on the attention to the trims and the ribbons and the time buying the bonnet and spending all your money on the. So the bonnet was the item, the the bonnet and the gloves. Well, yeah. Um, well, for Philomena, it was certainly, and um, um, you know, I mean, if you if you look at fashion plates from the period, you know, there's a great emphasis on bonnets and on headwear because women did have to have their head, their heads covered one way or the other most of the time. So, you know, you, you get a tremendous amount of variety. And I also saw it as the, um, as the equivalent of uh, designer shoes now for her. Oh, that's a good, that was a good equivalent. I was trying to figure out, because I know I love to wear hats, but, you know, people don't go crazy over hats. But, yes, that's what it's like. It's like designer shoes. Exactly. Very good. Well, Janet, it's delightful to read your book, and much success to you with it. The book, again, is called The Rules of Gentility, Janet Mullaney. Go to www.janetmullaney.com. And also look for her other books under the name of Jane Lockwood. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun reading anything that she writes because you will get a, a chuckle and a look into some historical past. And it's a lot of romance. And it was, it was a romantic book. I thought it was very romantic, Janet. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. We'll look for your new book. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style. Be the star you are. We'll be back in a minute, and we're going to be in the kitchen battling the chef. Stay with us. So now I'm currently unemployed as well. And, um... I'm just, we're, we're struggling around here because we're trying to keep a, you know, a positive attitude for the kids' sake, you know, not to get them all riled up. Then. Um, I don't know, they seem to be doing okay, but... Hi, I'm Morgan Freeman. America's national park system is one of the best ideas our country ever had. And I've got a lifetime of memories to prove it. But our parks are in trouble. Inadequate funding and other pressures are risking some of America's most awe-inspiring places. To help, visit www.americansfornationalparks.org or call 1-800-NATPARK. 1-800-NAT-PARK. That's just too much to lose. Hi, I'm Kelly Ripa. You probably know me best as a TV host and actress, but you may not know that my sister was seriously injured in a drunk driving crash. She is one of about a half a million people who are injured every year because of someone's careless choice to drink and drive. If you've survived a crash, or if you have a loved one who's been injured or killed due to drunk driving, please call MAD. They're here to help, and they're just a phone call away. Call 1-800-GET-MAD or visit mad.org. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Well, thanks for staying with us. You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are. And this is our Tea for Two, a mother-daughter brew segment. It's party time. I'm Cynthia Bryan, and with me is my co-host, best friend and beautiful daughter, Heather Brittany. Hello, hello. A quote that we love here at Tea for Two is, A woman is like a tea bag. You can't tell how strong she is 
until you put her in hot water. And, of course, that was Nancy Reagan, who was a former First Lady of the United States, who said that. And I thought that was a especially a great quote for starting off our segment today, because our topic, we're going into the kitchen, and we're going to be debating what makes a better chef a man or a woman. Now, throughout the ages, it appears that men have been touted as the top chefs, especially in restaurants. Well, at home, you know, cooking over the hearth, it's usually the woman who is the main cook. But now we're going to take the step a little bit further. Are the women the nurturers while men are the showboats? Heather is an amazing cook herself. And she's done some research on one of our favorite topics, which is cooking in the kitchen. Most definitely. Well, in my mind, I feel like there's two kinds of cooks, and it'd be the mama cooks and the show-off cooks. But thing with the mama cooks is not all mama cooks are females, but in my personal experience, I feel that all the show-off cooks are the men. Boys, <laughs> the boys are the ones with the chemistry sets. You know, they want the big explosion, the big, you know, ta-da. And mama food is there to satisfy you, to feed you, to take care of you. You know, all the, the kind of comfort food, the things that make you feel good. And if you look at some of the top chefs that are out there, they, you know, when we think of kind of the pizzazz chefs really making a name for themselves, they're known for being over the top and loud. Or like the Chef Ramsay of Hell's Kitchen or Emeril Lagasse or Bobby Flay, all these cooks, you know, that really, it's a, it's a big production for them. It's a big scene. But when we think of, you know, the mama, you know, real caring, I think of Paula Deen, of course, that, you know, it's, it's real comfort food, real deep in there. And something that's so interesting, you know, is that, at home, you know, it seems it's such a rarity, it's such a surprise when you see a boy in the kitchen or people are so impressed, oh, you know, my husband cooks or my boyfriend cooks. It's just, you know, such a, a wow almost and such an out of the ordinary. But in the actual culinary business, there's so much more uh, male chefs than there is female. And it wasn't until recent years, I think it wasn't until 1993 when the WCR was made, and that's the Women's Chef and Restaurants um, Corporation, is that it's all about, you know, getting women out there. And such a small percentage, only about 13%, uh, I believe, are women chefs out there. And some of these are the top ones. And surprisingly, they're not a lot, a lot of women are not pastry chefs. They're the top culinary, but the men still dominate the business. And it brings up the whole thing of, you know, are men better than women? Some things towards cooking. You know, we look at, you know, how men and women, uh, the math and the sciences, well, tests have shown that women are actually, actually do better in the math and the sciences, but due kind of to social conditioning, they're not, to- they're told that, you know, they shouldn't pursue that kind of career, that, you know, women, you know, they should build more womanly things, secretarial. And that's kind of what happens with boys as well, men, that, they may, at a young age, they might find that they love cooking, but it's not seen as a masculine job. No, it, yeah, but you know, I think about it in my own family in growing up. My grandfather, who was from Italy, he was the f- main cook, and he was a fabulous cook, and he did. He was kind of like a mama cook, you know. I mean, he he wasn't a showboat. And there are many male uh, male people out there. It is. It's funny that it just seems that less women are the showboat ones. 
And many men are the mama cooks too, but it's very not shown that women, uh, women have this desire to show off their cooking expertise. Yes, right. And, but you know, and then in my own immediate family, my mom was the cook, and my dad would only cook things that when we were sick, he, he had a special concoction that was very comfort food, you know. Mm-hmm. I always looked forward to it. It was certainly nothing fancy, but to us it was great because he was never in the kitchen. So it was kind of uh, a big deal. But I, I think that you're right. When we look at whether it be cooking shows or we go into a restaurant, you tend to see that all these little fancy kind of displays are usually there's a, a male behind this, whereas more of the food that satisfies and nurtures us and perhaps is good for us. You know, I think of Alice Waters opening Chez Panisse that really changed a whole food movement in California and across the United States. She opened this uh, restaurant called Chez Panisse where she was going to serve just fresh, local food, very simply prepared. And that, mm-hmm. yeah, the key word was simple, so that everything was like, like almost from, you know, the vine to your table. And it created this whole huge new other kind of, fo- of food awakening. And now it has also spawned many, many uh, successful chefs around the country. It's, it's such a it's such a lucrative business. It's such an odd thing that our society generally these um, women as the cooks, as the nurturers, but that men have always dominated this field. And so, which it brings about so many things of how that if it's not looked at as a masculine field, while men were still towards more uh, pursuing this, and even it was it's kind of like how women just recent well just recently, as in the, you know the sixties, how they started to get into the workforce and started uh, creating unions and getting equal pay and rights and all this, that it wasn't until really 1993 that women were allowed into these culinary schools or given the opportunity or looked at that these they could have skills beyond, you know, the Julia Child kind of thing. That she was one of the revolution people, but she's looked at more for the baking and the uh, lesson with the savory dishes. So it's it's so interesting that uh, when you look at I'm mean, just even the culinary field of that that it's so much about you know the gender roles and the social conditioning that our society creates and how slowly you know these norms are being broken down and different expectations are being created for us. Yeah. Now, are you saying that in culinary institutes they didn't even accept women? Well, it was very well in my research list, and I don't want to quote anything wrong. It just was saying that it was an extreme rarity that these women were accepted into it. That they had to possibly you know prove some more or do some kind of testing things that uh, most culinary schools don't uh, don't do. At least nowadays, is that men males were more accepted into it, and women kind of you know it's kind of like the the girl in the auto shop kind of has to fight a little more, prove herself that she's worthy to be there. And oftentimes, also when they were put into these uh, put into the culinary position, they were thought of more of being as the pastry, as the sweets person. When actually, um, many men are more of the 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 baked goods and and pastry chefs that are out there. Oh, that's very interesting. Cause I know that when I was back in New York, up in the Hudson River Valley, I went to um, the Culinary Institute of America there. That is one of the most famous ones. You know, there's yeah. that. There's this one that, and it's the same one that is affiliated with the one that is the, the former Christian Brothers up in Saint Helena, California. Mm. And they are they're sister um, institutes. And it was interesting, there were women at the um, academy, but I would say there were four times the men going to it. And usually, and there's different, 
in the culinary fields, there's different, just like in all positions, there's high, the executive chef is the highest one, and then there's the sous chef, there's the line chef, there's the paint, pantry chef, uh, you know, the pastry chef. There's so many different positions, and each one has different costs. The top one who has the total cost, um, who's conducting the thing, that almost the most places isn't, isn't even really even cooking the meals anymore, that just kind of they create the daily recipe or the the daily menu for a restaurant. They show the other cooks, this is what should be done. It's the executive chef. And many chefs uh, in the culinary schools are actually dominated by male things. I know when I did um, an extension program, we ours was a top chef who was male, and many any of the guest speakers he had come on were also male as well. And it's just it's a real hard position for women and kind of the, the cutthroatness also that, uh, I don't know if you've seen the Hell's Kitchen. That you know, chef uh, restaurant business. It's a very, it's a very rewarding job, but very, very stressful. Very high, you know, constant demand, constant go, go, go. You know, all this kind of thing, the in and out of it. Uh, well, I know that you always thought that you might want to be a chef in a restaurant until you went to the culinary, exactly. culinary academy, and, and you I, thought, I, no, I, I didn't I, want. I didn't want my passion to be my profession. Now, uh, my boyfriend, on the other hand, he is actually starting culinary school uh, this coming fall, and he this is all, he's a, a natural chef as it is, so amazing in the kitchen, and so I'm I'm so excited to see once you know once you get the 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 proper training, just to see where he already is without any of this training, where it's just kind of the the mom and pop training. How he, he knows so much, you know, of the the rustic and the pairing of foods. And it's how you can excel at that. And really, you know, it's that you've got to be passionate about your job, and especially something that's going to be this high end and this stressful. Um, and something I think, you know, when it relates to, you know, the culinary world is really taken off now. You know, these are the Food Network and this, you know, these kind of uh, reality TV craves that are going on. There's that Hell's Kitchen, this Top Chef. Uh, Food Network has a show, the next Food Network star, which recently this year for the first time, I think it's the third year of the show, that a woman uh, is the new Food Network star. Oh, and that's interesting. She was, yeah, and she was just, she's actually from the San Diego area, and she was just a mom that I believe she has a small catering business or something, but it's real, just mom and poppy thing, but it's all on personality. So she can sell it. She wouldn't be, when it comes to things, she wouldn't be able to work in the high end, uh, the restaurant of the intensity, but she's able to, as a viewer, we want to test someone. We want to see this person. We want to feel comfortable. Not someone that knows, you know, that all the terminology, all this word stuff, but someone that makes you feel comfortable and that you would trust them in your own. Heather, was she the one? Because I, I did yes, ask that. No, like, uh, she the one we, that wanted to quit because she just yeah, did. And the, the craziest thing was when it got down to the final two people, they actually did not choose her. She got kicked out, and it was her and this other guy, or, uh, a, another girl, another guy. But then weeks later, on one of the final episodes, I guess some secrets came out about this guy that he didn't really uh, finish culinary school, and he used to be a Marine, but and he had said he'd gone to Afghanistan, and so all these things came up that he had said he'd done that hadn't, and dude just he didn't want to bring any shame to the network or have any backlash. So he was drawn from the competition, and so it was kind of like, guess what? You get to come back, and she ended up winning. Wow, that's a yeah, <laughs> that's a great well, story. <laughs> We only have a couple minutes here. We have to wrap up. But um, um, we were out to dinner the other night at a great restaurant here in Northern California called Postino where the wait staff are just unbelievable. And we were talking about the Food Network and saying, why isn't there a show that would be like the Battle of the Wait Staff? Because it's the wait staff that make the chefs look good. so fun, yeah. So I and, also, and also they, um, get the, they get the, the negative backlash, too, when someone's meal doesn't come out right.
that you don't start yelling at the chef, you start yelling at your server of, I don't know what's wrong with this. Well, I wanted you to investigate to see if there's any show out there like that because I think that needs to be pitched. I, think I it would say be yes. <laughs> okay, well, maybe Heather and I are going to write the, we'll write a show <laughs> and you'll be hearing yeah. about it. You listen, you heard it here first on Star Style, Be the Star You Are in our Deeper Two segment with Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. And we're going <laughs> to maybe have the Battle of the Weight Staff. I love it. Well, thank you, Heather. So basically we're going to say it's a draw. <laughs> that both men and women know how to cook and, you know, just go into the kitchen and have a good time and go ahead and nurture and at the same time create some beauty and some flair. But we want to thank you for being great listeners and tuning into our show every week here at Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We want you to take a look in the mirror and admire yourself because you are a wonder of creation. And remember that all of you have the ability to be the writers, producers, and the stars of your own life. So until we connect again next week, we want you to celebrate. Heather, give out the website. Most definitely. We want you to help out with the charity, the radio show, find out about any of these books and new things that are coming on with all the great organizations we're involved with. Check out stelladonine.com. That's S-T-E-L-L-A-D-O-N-N-E.com. All right. Well, we'll see you next week when we'll have another great show. My name is Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Whitney. Go out in the world and be the star you are. You've been great listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. Ciao for now. You're an artist, a poet who will never give up. So make all your dreams come true. Let go of 